This is Joseph Gervaisi. I'm here with Pete Tridish, uh, one of the founders of the Prometheus Radio Project, uh, and Kate Wendland Duncan, who uh, co-founded uh, the Radio Mutiny and uh, went on to be a part of Rebellious Nursing. Uh, today is the 9th of December, 2013. Uh, we're conducting this interview at my house in beautiful Roxborough, Philadelphia. And um, this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hello, friends. Hi. Thanks for Hi, coming. Thanks for having us. Hi. Uh, so because we're, for this particular interview, we're dealing with two individuals who um, didn't originally know each other, kind of came together for a project and then remained friends, but went in different directions. We're going to bounce back and forth between the two of you. Um, but of course, feel free to kind of interject any of your own questions or comments as we do the interview. Um, so uh, I guess we'll begin with Kate, um, because I'm a gentleman, and we always begin <laughs> with a lady. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about uh, your upbringing. So first, where were you born and when? I was born in Canton, Ohio on October 10th, 1972. Okay. And what was, the, what was Canton like you know, uh, at the time that you grew up there? Um, I probably had a different experience of Canton than many other people who lived in Canton. Um, I really don't remember much of it until high school, which I would like to block out also. Um, you have, you have a block of all of your upbringing up to high school? No, I remember being a little kid and everything. It just, uh, I think my formative years were actually very much high school rather than no, well, that's not even true. Um, I had a really great neighborhood when I was little. Uh, I was the, the runt of the litter um, of all the kids in the neighborhood who would play together. Uh, so I was kind of at the, um, I was kind of the butt of the joke a lot. Uh, but I think that makes me, I think that added to my personality in ways that I can appreciate now. Mm -hmm. um, but all the kids in our neighborhood were uh, really creative people who um, we did role-playing games and then when there was nothing to do we would make up our own games instead of in just playing with plastic shit um, we had we played cheddar ball and what dinosaurs dinosaurs everywhere and, I don't know what the, does anyone else know <laughs> what these yonder. games are these are just things that no they made we up. just made them up oh, ourselves okay. like over yonder was um, kind of a version of playing house but on the prairie uh, like my dad's workbench was always the barn and the kids were always getting banished to the barn for doing bad things and um, No, this is from like Little House on the Prairie the, the TV show that was popular No, I just or... no um, It was just like Our version of, of house, but it, we were pioneers. Okay, like um, So that was just to illustrate it a little bit um, and cheddar ball was uh, something that we played with a baseball bat and one of those red balls that are um, ubiquitous on playgrounds. Right, used for and, kickball. Yeah. Customarily. Right. And the neighbor's fence. Um, and we, like, we had to bat the ball on the ground into different, um, like between different fence posts and got different uh, numbers of points for each location on the fence. It was kind of taking revenge on the fence because they built it in a place where we used to play. Mm -hmm. uh, so we couldn't play there anymore. Um, and then dinosaurs, dinosaurs everywhere was basically people yelling, oh my God, there's a dinosaur, run! And then we would run down the street. That was it. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> yeah. And um, you were at the back of the line of people running. 
Yeah, yeah, usually. I got eaten by the dinosaur a lot. Um, but we would also, every summer, we would make films um, that, like, pretty well-scripted and developed films. Um, Steve and Heather Wiley's mom would get out the Super 8 camera and film us uh, with... Um, like the first one I th we did was Attack of the Killer Petunias, I think, um, which all these petunias would come to life and be monsters and eat people until the, it was discovered that the music of um, Slim Whit, Slim Whitman, Slim, yeah, would uh, would kill them. Hmm. Um, we did one per summer and would invite the whole neighborhood to see it in the backyard and put up a big screen and. Um, Adults weren't admitted without children <laughs> and uh, make popcorn and stuff. They were great. They say you kept the pedophiles out of the... Yeah, I guess. I don't think... I think that was just a joke. We weren't actually worried about that then. How did you manage to grow up with creative people? Like, everyone I grew up with was a fucking dunce. Uh, I just got really lucky in the neighborhood that we lived in. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Uh, so you said that, that you sort of came into your own, in a way, in, in high school, where there's certain experiences that you went through or influences that were coming into your head that kind of began to lead you towards the person that you are at present? Mm -hmm. I think so. Um, my sister, who's five years older than me, went to Sweden for a year to be an exchange student. When she came back, she brought all this awesome music with her. Um, what would that be? The Cure and Violent Femmes and uh, Suicidal Tendencies. And um, it made me start thinking differently than, um, I, I, because of that music, I think I became the weird kid at my middle school, um, and I got a haircut with, like, the hair spiked up on the side, and I had a rat tail and everything, mm -hmm. and, um, like, started cutting the collars off of my, collars off of my dad's old Oxford shirts and wearing them over, uh, like, band t-shirts and jeans with holes in them and stuff, and, um, so I was kind of an out, cast because of that because I looked different from other people and then we moved in high school to a different high school district and the rumor was that you had to look exactly like everybody else at this high school or you wouldn't have any friends so I tried really hard and failed miserably and went back to how I was dressing before with kind of my own style and which was really my sister's style and um then People started, you know, by then other people started being skaters and stuff and they were all like, you're a poser. You totally changed just to get in good with us. Um, but it was also very much my perception, you know, being not very confident in myself at all and um, wanting so badly to be really, I mean, to be friends with the cool people or the people that I thought were cool. Uh, and just kind of being not myself so that I could be uh, friends with other people. But um, but it worked out. I, <laughs> I imagine you eventually, eventually then begin to find a, a, a niche that you fit comfortably into to some degree, or no? I did have a niche. I never really felt comfortable, but I think looking back on it, um, like there was a dance club that we went to that uh, called Cracker Jacks that it was like Hungry Hungry Hippos that, you know, one with the with the DJ, like they would play a set of um, alternative music and then they would play a set of pop music and then they would play a set of rap and then they would play a set of metal and like everybody who listened to that music would stay 
separate in their different corners mm -hmm. and only come out onto the dance floor when their music was being played. Yes. Um, and I was very much a part of that alternative corner. Um, and now, like 25, however many years later, they're uh, talking about orchestrating a reunion of the Cracker Jacks corner. <laughs> You're going back but, for that. No, I don't think so. I, I fantasize about it, but I wouldn't actually do it. Probably for the best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, any other kind of crucial points that we want to get to in, in young you before we kind of move on to somewhat more current you? Um, just that when, when I applied to colleges, I chose the college that was as far from Ohio as I could get. <laughs> I just got... And that would be Mars or what? Where was, what college was that? Uh, Milwaukee. Okay. Yeah, not quite Mars. Um, and that I don't have any family in Ohio anymore, and I'm, I'm very much a Philadelphian. People ask me where I'm from, I say Philadelphia. Very good. How, long, how many years have you been in Philadelphia? Since January 1st of 97, so 16 years, closing in on 16. Yeah, that's pretty 17. good. Hmm. Uh, so Pete, I guess we'll, we'll shift over to you now. Um, where were you born and what year? Uh, I'm from Brooklyn, uh, November of 1979. Okay. Uh, 69, 1969. And um, I grew up there until I was about 17, and I went off to college in Ohio at Antioch. And uh, then uh, I moved I moved around a lot in college because I went to Antioch, which had lots of internships. So I lived for a little bit in Chicago, Atlanta, Vermont. Um, Washington DC, other places. And then I went back to New York and uh, I was a squatter for a couple of years in the Lower East Side. Uh, and then I uh, moved to Philadelphia in 95. We'll go back a, a little bit to you growing up uh, initially in Brooklyn. What was the your, your part of Brooklyn like at the time that you were growing up in it? I was in Park Slope. And it was a very uh, different Park Slope than what you would see now. Um, uh, at that time, it was right when white flight was happening. And so, um, you know, the, all the, the Polish and the Irish and the Italians were all leaving the, leaving the neighborhood with the fear that it was going to become a Puerto Rican and, or maybe a black neighborhood. Um, and so it was very, uh, you know, it was also when the, the city, when New York was having a giant fiscal crisis and laying off all the teachers because they couldn't afford to pay the teachers and that sort of thing. So it was a very, kind of very different time then. Uh, and so, um, in a lot of ways, moving here to West Philadelphia reminds me a lot of Park Slope in the 70s, uh, you know, uh, until like maybe three years ago. Um, uh, and how's that? West, uh, how, what's West Philly was, you know, West Philly is a lot more like the Park Slope I grew up in, mm -hmm. um, where, yeah, there's like a kind of a element of progressives and activists, but, but it was really mostly a black neighborhood. Um, and and that, was, that was true of Park Slope. Um, black Puerto Rican, um, you know, the schools I attended were, 
Um, so, uh, yeah. So, I, actually, I really kind of, um, I still like Philadelphia much better because I, I just feel a lot more comfortable here than I do. I mean, if you go to Park Slope now, I mean, it's all stockbrokers. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I, I can't imagine, you know, how people can afford to live there unless they're stealing money from someone. Right. Like but what is some form of legal theft of mm -hmm. stocks or, you know, Wall Street or something. Right. Why did your parents elect to stay there when so many others vacated at that time? Uh, well, my mom actually, uh, people really didn't like to rent to people with children. And I had just been born, and she was she couldn't find a rental anywhere. So you were just living with your mother as a kid. Uh, no, my mother and father at that okay. time, but they 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 couldn't find an apartment that they could rent, and so she ended up buying a house there. Um, uh, and so she bought in a poor neighborhood because that's what she could afford. Um, and she was pretty estranged from her family. The rest of her family moved out of New York and moved to Florida because they were like, oh, this place is going to hell. Man. So, uh, and she wanted, she really was estranged from her, from her family. So she was the one that stayed in the, in Brooklyn. She's from Bensonhurst originally. Okay. What did your parents do for a living? Um, my mom was a public school teacher. My father was, uh, he, uh, worked in like maintenance of like air conditioners and heating systems and that kind of thing. Not for himself, just like for like big buildings. Um, but uh, he he left when I was about six, so I don't really know him, uh, and uh, and he's dead. But uh, um, uh, my stepfather worked in a in a hardware store, uh, and uh, and he was a folk musician. He he uh, worked with he was like a roadie for Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, the um, blues musicians, uh, for, for a number of years. And did he did he record any of his own material or release anything? He does. If you look on the web at papadish.net, he actually named his his new stage name. He named after my uh, <laughs> my pirate radio great. name. Um, uh, yeah, and um, and right when I left for college, they launched a picture framing business, which they still have. Okay. Um, so they. They do picture framing together. They both quit their jobs and just tried to make it a, make it in that. So young you, pr prior to becoming uh, involved with underground radio, with, with any real form of radio, what were your interests or what do you think were maybe some of the, the seeds or strands that went into you that eventually kind of blossomed into this interest? Well, when I was a really little kid, I was kind of... Uh, I was very shy. I was also pretty small, um, and uh, I never did well in sports, and I never really had any friends until high school. Um, and I, uh, I, I originally wanted to be a scientist of some sort, and I ended up going to a sort of a science and math high school. I went to Stuyvesant, and um, that's it's a public school, but. People kind of treat it like a prep school uh, for going to the Ivy Leagues. And, you know, I thought that I really liked science at that time, but then I saw kind of how it was taught there. And 
I felt like everything was really oriented towards, oh, learn physics so you can get into Harvard and then make a lot of money being, you know, whatever. And I just, something, um, something just deeply disenchanted me about the whole thing right around 10th grade or so. So there was no, there was no part of you that wanted to make that money or go into that sort of trajectory towards, towards that? No, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that. I didn't like the competitive values and the rat race part of it. And I just thought it was really pretentious and stupid. I, I should mention also my parents, my, my mother and my stepfather, they actually met working on a community newspaper called Up the Slope in Park Slope, you know, during the 70s. So they essentially met at a community media project. So, mm-hmm. um, so I think that I, uh, so in 10th grade, I became very politicized and I got involved in working in the movement against nuclear weapons. It was time when a lot of people were. It was, I guess, when Reagan was threatening the Soviet Union and there was a lot of... Yeah, at that time it seemed imminent. Yeah. The nuclear clock was moving towards the 12. Yeah, I put those posters up all over New York, like the, you know, it's five minutes to midnight, you know, the bombing starts in five minutes with Ronald Reagan and Mm -hmm. stuff. And uh, so I got involved. We started a little group called uh, Nuclear Winter. I also, by extension from that, I got introduced to Latin American solidarity work and work on um, apartheid and and other issues. And so um, I kind of checked out of high school a little bit. I got more involved in, I did some work in my school, but I also got involved in adult groups that we're doing that sort of thing and you know the nice thing about being a kid and working with adults is everyone's really nice to you mm-hmm. you know they're like nicer than your peers in right. a lot of ways um so uh yeah i got like a lot of really great mentorship from older activists and in those kinds of contexts and um and uh, you know another influence at that time um was uh, there was the radio station WFMU in um, that you could hear just barely, but you could hear it. So I got in the habit pretty young of like, you know, trying to like scritch and like try to tune into this remote awesome station. And why don't you explain uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, what you know, where FMU comes out of, and what you know, a little bit about them or what you know. Yeah, they're a college station, or they were a college station in New Jersey, and they were one of the pioneers of the freeform format, which basically meant that while most of commercial radio tries to identify very particular markets, you know, soccer moms or um, you know, twenty-two to twenty-eight-year-old construction worker guys, you know, or mm-hmm. whatever. And they try to identify their musical taste and, and get something very narrowly programmed. Um, WFMU had all volunteer DJs, a lot of whom are actually musicians who um, were free to play anything they wanted, but they have the one guiding thing is don't play anything that you would be able to hear on a top 40 station or somewhere else on the dial, because this is the place for everything in our cultural heritage that's left off the rest of the dial and so you know i in high school i would be listening to just music that was really goofy you know just like you know the nose whistling 
sweets, you know, from the 40s or whatever. And Did you genuinely like these things or was it just because it was so peculiar? I mean, what was the appeal to nose whistling sweets? I, I, I genuinely liked it because I think the DJs just made it really interesting. Um, you know, they were very ironic and they were like very, you know, they would talk up some like weird little, you know, weird little piece of music you know, in such a way, you know, obviously it had like come from their Aunt Petunia's, you know, record collection mm -hmm. that they, that had been hauled out of the attic and... The dusty old 78. Yeah. So, you know, I really, I definitely liked that and that was definitely uh, a big influence, being able to listen to that and just to get like a kind of a wider section of music. I actually, I never really, um, yeah, that was always like kind of my, my biggest musical there so then was there a desire in you at this point that you wanted to be a part of some form of radio you know no not at that time and I my my college had a pretty um, cool radio station and I had nothing to do with it um, I went on there two or three times you know when friends had shows um, but I think it was just part of my expectation that like you know when you're that you could just listen and you could hear like people that would like introduce you to like totally things that you'd never heard before and things, you know, that, you know, that, that were kind of amazing and off the beaten track. So when I moved to Philadelphia and there wasn't very much like that on the FM dial at the time, I, you know, I, that was definitely part of what made me want to, to make a station like that. Mm -hmm. When did you wind up getting to Philadelphia? Uh, I moved to Philly in 95. Um, and this was after you had squatted in New York? Yeah, I had been a squatter from about the summer of 92 to the fall of 95 or so. And what prompted you to do that? Uh, those those motherfuckers were crazy in that squat. They were just like, What was the squat? Did it have a name? It was Umbrella House. Okay. Uh, and it's still there. It was eventually purchased and a lot of the same people live there. And it's a hilarious, hilarious space. I mean, it's like a six-story building with two big storefronts, about 40 of us squatting there, 20 apartments, more or less, um, maybe 25 apartments. But, you know, it was just a real, um, real interesting place. Uh, everyone there, not, not everyone there, but a lot of people there were just whack jobs, total, total whack jobs. And, you know, the, the squatting movement in New York started from this place of like a radical reaction to the, the housing crisis that was coming. There was a, a real policy of destroying affordable housing in New York for a number of years because landlords couldn't make enough money. And so people were just burning down their buildings and collecting insurance money on them because the, the rents weren't enough because so many people had left the city. And then it started to, you know, turn around and all of a sudden, like, people were not used to not being able to find a place to live. And of course, it's gone all the way the other way at this point to where it's like, you know, $3,000 to rent a closet anywhere. But the squatting movement was a radical alternative. It was to, like, open these buildings and it was a coalition of, you know, sort of like the more traditional sort of, you know, older, drunk, homeless person, you know, along with a lot of these artists who could no longer live to afford to live in the city with sort of radicals and um, 
my my particular house had like a, a little bit of a surplus of Europeans who are used to the like European squatting lifestyle thing. So probably uh, a bit more organized than, or, or were they? I mean, I don't. I don't they know. were actually a little less organized, I think. I mean, we were very earnest about like politics and like homelessness and everything. In Europe, they never had that problem, so they it was like more like a lifestyle in a lot of ways. The, the squatting there, it was just. Um, yeah, I was all I was always really puzzled by by the European squatters because they would, you know, they would come around two p.m. in the afternoon and be like, "Oh, we make breakfast. You want some breakfast?" And I'm like, "I ate breakfast like five hours ago, dude." <laughs> but, 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 how is how do you get that many people living in a space who, with with such sort of disparate interest and and points of view and places that they come from. I'm sure you've got junkies in there as well as, you know, astute political yeah. activists and all this. I mean, this is kind of moving off the topic a bit, but how do all these people manage to live together and not go bananas? It was crazy. They, they, they did go bananas quite a bit. There were like a couple people that were just like flat out certifiable, you know. And I mean, part of why I left eventually was I felt that you know, I went in with all these like idealistic intentions about like building this coalition of like homeless and, you know, activists and everything. And I felt like the whole time I was there, we were always in the middle of throwing someone out. And it was always for a good reason, you know, like someone got drunk and started harassing women, you know, and banging on their doors, you know, like in the middle of the night or, or, I don't know, someone started using heroin again and like, you know, people were worried he's going to start stealing or, I don't know, just like, but yeah, and, but what I, but what we realized eventually was that like even our very minimal $80 rent that we, like building fee that we all paid in and our minimal rules about like decent treatment of each other what it was making happen was that like kind of like you know kind of middle class white radicals could stay and like all the actual homeless people were like coming through you know and they would last a couple months or a year or two and then they would do something totally fucked up and we would kick them out and so it, i there was a kind of a contradiction there that i couldn't quite resolve at that time in terms of like you know so what do you okay so we created this opportunity of this like space we had taken away taken back from the from capitalism um and what were we doing with it exactly um were we were we doing the best thing with it were the people that we were doing this with were they so damaged by the rest of their history their upbringing whatever that even when they had a pretty good setup you know, they would fuck it up for themselves, you know, in one way or another. So it just raised a lot of interesting questions. And and uh, it, how I came to Philly is actually a little bit of a funny story. Um, there was uh, this guy who was also living there in the squat, Seth Tabachman, who, you know, you might you know, have the seen artist, his, right? his mm -hmm. art. He was one of my inspirations when I, when I moved there. You know, he has this, these incredible comics about spatial deconcentration and the war on the poor and everything and people with sledgehammers like opening up abandoned buildings and whatever um 
I, you know, I came to have a couple of, you know, disagreements with him over time for various, you know, internal house political reasons, you know. Um, and this one time he went to Philadelphia for a show or something like that, and he went to not squat, and he saw them all, like, working on the house. One of the things, I, I really liked organizing big work projects at my house that no one would show up to. Um, and... Um, I had the experience, I'd, I'd worked at Habitat for Humanity some before, and so I was used to organizing work parties of 40, 50 people. And, uh, but, you know, everyone, not everyone, but, but, you know, it was hard to get people going on a building that they didn't own, you know, to fix it up. And he came and there was a big work party that weekend, and, you know, and he, he came back to, to New York and was like, you know, I visit Philadelphia, and there's this building there. It was a squad. It was just bought. I think you'd really like it there. I was like, yeah, yeah, Seth. I know you've been trying to get rid of me for a long time. <laughs> um, but as it turned out, I, I went to visit for another reason, like a couple months afterwards. And I thought, wow, I, you know, I liked it a lot better. Mm -hmm. um, my big moment in New York was uh, we had built this community garden. Uh, next to our squat, I had actually, with Mimi, we had actually built this amazing um, uh, pool in it. Um, it was like a giant concrete bowl with like a giant um, pole coming out the middle. And there was an umbrella that came out of it. And we had a pump and we made it into a fountain where yes. the water all came down the sides of the umbrella. And our house was called Umbrella House. And they had bulldozed the garden. And we we're all bummed out. They were gonna like build condos or whatever crap on it, and uh, so that was bad enough. Not five minutes after the bulldozers are gone, there are these like four really high fashion people, like posing on the rubble uh, <laughs> for, a like, photo shoot, for yeah. a photo shoot. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I was like looking at that, and I was like. Why do I need to live in New York? Like, you know, obviously they're here for a reason, but why am I here? You know, like, and, uh, you know, and so when I visited Philadelphia, I was like, wow, this is everything good about, good for me about New York. It's a big city. It's, you know, diverse. It's um, a lot of people, a lot of activism to do and that sort of thing. Um, but none of the crap that makes it expensive and there's no Wall Street, there's no Madison Avenue, there's no, none of that stuff that makes New York such a terrible fucking place. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, yeah, yeah, so so it was, a, it was a good fit for me. But coming into Philadelphia, were you involved with radio at that point or was that still something that was yet to come? I wasn't involved. The first thing I got involved in here was the Pentridge Children's Garden, which you want to explain was that? Yeah. Um, just like kind of a, a bunch of us that, that lived in the West Philadelphia group houses. Um, we had lots of neighbors with kids at that time, more so then than, than now, certainly. Um, and uh, someone had organized a, a garden uh, at, on Pentridge Street, and it was kind of like a summer camp that we ran for free. 
um, that we staffed pretty much all with volunteers just like doing science projects and gardening projects and that kind of thing. Um, so it was like kind of like a little bit like glorified free babysitting for neighborhood kids. Mm -hmm. um, and the parents were into these kind of probably fairly peculiar looking people, you know, teaching their, their children. and More so than you would think, you know, I mean, like the parents were kind of absent a lot, you know, um, didn't see a lot of them. I mean, we knew nothing about what you were supposed to do with childcare and so, I mean, there weren't any like permission slips or FBI checks for pedophiles or right. like, like any of that. We didn't know you're supposed to do all that stuff. And so when I started like learning a little bit more about all the things we were supposed to be doing, like I got a little scared and I was just like, you know, I probably, I don't know if this project is really, you know, viable mm -hmm. because like we're breaking so many laws by having people's children around um but the the parents didn't you know seem happy enough about it mm -hmm. um but yeah just like the larger social structures could have gotten us in a giant heap of trouble i think i'm know? sure if one of the kids hurt themselves then then yeah. that, that then begins the real troubles yeah totally uh so then later on I guess, I mean, when is the point where, where the radio kind of comes into your interest and in activities? Well, what happened was there was an important case that happened um, in California. Uh, there, was, uh, there was this guy named Stephen Dunifer who had um, been an anti-war activist and he was very upset by the coverage of the first Gulf War. Um, and he decided that he was just going to like report the news himself if all you were gonna get from the corporate media were lies about you know, American support for that war. So he would go up in the mountains outside of Berkeley and he would broadcast, you know, imperialism, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, so he got hauled before a judge and he had some very clever lawyers from the National Lawyers Guild Committee on Democratic Communications. And basically the, the lawyers said, um, all right, judge, I mean, we, we acknowledge that the FCC has the right to regulate the airwaves. There are only so many radio stations to distribute. And so um, freedom of speech can be restricted at the discretion of the, of the FCC. However, when you're doing that, if you're restricting freedom of speech, you're supposed to really be doing so in the way that's the least harmful possible to freedom of expression, freedom of speech. And so can you at the FCC really say that Clear Channel owning 1,200 radio stations and my client owning none is the very least restrictive means available with freedom of speech that you could choose to like regulate who owns radio stations and who doesn't. And the, um, the judge, Claudia Wilkin, was just kind of like, good question. <laughs> I am really, I got to think about that one. And so what she did was she refused to get an injunction against Stephen Donifer for his illegal pirate broadcasts. And the FCC lawyer, he was like, you don't know what you're doing, Judge Wilkin. Mm -hmm. You're opening up a giant can of worms. I mean, nobody can... A giant can of free speech. Yeah, no one can, can, 
question that the FCC can get an injunction against you for broadcasting without a license. She was like, yeah, we'll see. And um, so immediately after that, he started a storefront in Berkeley and he started selling pirate radio kits. And we bought one of those. Uh, and at first, I mean, none of us had ever been on the radio. None of us knew how to make these things work. And when you say us, who was initially part of this, this organization? Well, I first heard about it, I think, from Digger Vermont, who lived next to me, um, where Bo lives now, uh, in Cinder Garden. And uh, he bought one of the kits. He couldn't make it work. He was like, this is a piece of crap. Um, what was in the kit? Just a bunch of like resistors and capacitors and transistors and the circuit board. And instructions on how to build your own transmitter. Yeah. But oh, the so they're not giving you a transmitter. you got to build that. Okay. Yeah, it's illegal to sell. I think his, his idea was that it was illegal to sell a fully built transmitter. Um, I don't think that's correct, because I buy them all the time. But um, I think what's illegal is to operate it. Um, but anyway, uh, so we bought that, and it didn't work. We like managed to like burn it up a couple times trying. And finally, I went out. Or actually, I think Kathleen went out. Yeah, Kathleen went out and got him to make us a working one. And then I went out later to try to fix one. And it went out as in you went to Berkeley? Yeah, I went okay. to Berkeley. She was going for, like, family or something. And then, again, who, who all was in, involved initially oh, in the... Um, the... The initial collective, the very first one, included Kale Layton um, and Melissa Forbus and myself and Mimi Budnick and um, there was one more person. Not Kathleen? Maybe it was Kathleen. Yeah, maybe it was Kathleen who I had gone to college with, Kathleen Harris. And then pretty quickly after that, um, we were joined by Communicate and by... um, by Moira, Moira O'Keefe. And that was the whole collective, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did, the collective, did the collective have a name at this point? Radio Mutiny. Okay. Yeah. And we had, uh, Kale and Melissa left to move to Chiapas uh, before we even got on the air. And uh, it took us a good six months or something but the, the real formative thing for me, I don't know if this was a little bit before you got involved. It might have been right when you got involved. But there was a book. Um, someone handed me this book called uh, Rebel Radio. And up until then, our attitude had been like, there's this guy, Stephen Donifer, and he's kind of a crackpot, and he sent us this bunch of parts that doesn't work, and we don't know how to do it, and like it's all broken kind of thing. And, I don't know, you know, it was just like some idea. I'm like, yeah, okay, we could have a radio station, why not, you know? But um, someone gave me that book. I don't know who gave it to me, but it's probably like one of two books that have most influenced the course of my life. What's the other book? Uh, it's called Sex and Broadcasting. Okay. Um, and um, basically it's the story of a bunch of campesinos in El Salvador during the war of American intervention in El Salvador with the 
the U.S. government was supporting the death squads in early Salvador in the in the eighties. Yeah, and um, you know the FMLN uh, was was fighting, and a, a small crew of uh, like a couple of Germans donated a transmitter to the rebel army, and um, it was a very very important part of the rebel the rebels' tactics and, and everything, and. Um, you know, the, the thing about that book was, um, I mean, almost a couple people had come from around Latin America to support it, but a lot of the people involved in that radio station were illiterate, you know, they didn't have shoes, they had no education or whatever. And, and, um, and yet they were on the air every night at 5 PM for 11 years during a war. And they were being bombed. They were like hiding in bat caves, you know, like they were, um, they had to, because the bombs would come down on their, their transmitter site, they had to like run their signal, uh, over barbed wire fences over miles. And they had teams of, of campesinos go out every night and like connect and disconnect, you know, the wire fences to, to move their signal. And yeah, I read that in like maybe three, four days and I passed it to the other people that were in the group at the time. And it was time for our, you know, every other month kind of like complain session, like, oh, I can't get the transmitter. I don't know what's wrong with this shit, blah, blah. But like we passed that book around the, the five of us and I think we all read it in like within a two, three weeks because it's like a total page turner, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, we all got to that next meeting and we're like, we are fucking lame. What the fuck is wrong with us? I mean, I mean, we live in the land of Radio Shack and like universities and like, we got to get a grip on ourselves, you know? And um, after that, we just got very much more serious very quickly and, you know, put a lot more time into it. We were pretty embarrassed. And um, uh, that, that positive sense of embarrassment, you know, <laughs> like, and uh, yeah, and like within about two months, we were, we were on the air. Well, what was the idea coming into this thing of what did you think that you wanted to transmit out into the world, given this opportunity to transmit or out into the, you know, whatever the area was that you could hit? Um, maybe there's a good moment for the radio mutiny mission statement yeah. right <laughs> and that was exactly when i met you i think when when you had um first started with the uh with the book empowering you all because you went to that conference in new york and i had um well he was doing all that i was at the uh at school getting a journalism degree um which ended up i mean i started journalism because i uh was interested in so many different things and I figured that writing about them was a way to be involved in all of them and um, also I was really interested in telling people's individual stories and it ended up being like incidentally I was politicized also by homelessness and, and nuclear disarmament through um, the influence of my mother who was very involved in both of those things um, and so while I was at school I was pursuing um, learning about how gender, race, and class are represented in mass media and figuring out that they're basically, I mean, 
com completely misrepresented. Um, and that media is, you know, the mass, mass media, people watch so much TV that it's like fairy tales, that the, the stories that we learn from TV replace the stories of morality that people are, are told. And, and so you learn by watching these stories that this is what really happens in the world and this is where I fit into it. Um, so when I, when I graduated, I came, moved to Philadelphia to work for the Cultural Environment Movement, which was um, a, non, very, a brand new nonprofit organization, a coalition of a bunch of um, organizations that wanted to change the representation of gender, race, and class in mass media. And they were working on it like very top down and also really didn't know what they were doing. I mean, I was their only staff person aside from the executive director and I had, it was this international organization. Mm. I had never had a job before except at like Joanne Fabrics and you know the Science Museum. And so they, it, it was kind of ineffectual but also pretty inspiring um, and I, in those auspices, I got to go to a conference in New York. Um, it was pretty academic. I don't even remember what conference it was, um, but that's there was addressing those issues, and that's where I met Pete and Moira, um, and we ended up sitting next to each other and learned that we were from Philadelphia. So I had to go to New York to meet people from Philadelphia, and I had just moved here and didn't know anybody and I was just so excited to meet these awesome people who were doing this thing that I mean that at, at CEM everything was like so lofty and academic and and just couldn't really get a good grip on what we could do to change the dominant paradigm and you know Pete and Moira and the Radio Mutiny Collective were just doing it with this in a project that cost very little money, that was really reproducible, that had a lot of um, great conviction behind it, um, con conviction that it informed conviction behind it, and um, was a way for people to tell their own stories without like using a lot of energy or anything, and just learning about how. The, the big problems in the, the mass media, like what, how it tied in with the way that um, people are so misrepresented in mass media because there's just so much money behind that. Um, and here was a great way to counteract it, just really galvanized me. Um, and I was ridiculously surprised when they asked me to be part of the collective and um, it completely changed my life and has just meeting them at that conference has really influenced who I've become and what I've been able to do in Philadelphia since then. It made me feel very much at home here. We were so excited to meet Kate because <laughs> like none of us really had any background in media except for Moira. Moira had like studied film some, so she had some idea. The rest of us were just like kind of, you know, sort of dissatisfied left us and like we knew there was like something we didn't like about corporate ownership and media and like corporations using their ownership of media to change the american conversation but that i mean that's about as much as you could have gotten out of us at the time mm -hmm. you know we had like a bit but we didn't have any of the details and like one thing about me and kate was that she had like actually studied 
all the stuff and was actually working for an organization that was that was working on these issues and so we suddenly like felt like we had tapped into something that was like not so um you know we tapped into something that like we hadn't like half made up ourselves from like a gut sort of a thing but that actually had like people studying it and people thinking about it and all that sort of thing so it was like it was like really um it was like kind of a sign to us that like what we were doing would, would actually matter that, that kate liked it <laughs> so, <laughs> that was so funny. it was like i mean it, it was a moment where like you know the validation of it was like really kind of like we weren't quite sure like how important this thing that we were doing was and also you know there are elements of it like you know like the the kind of key four or five people that that started it did it for very political reasons um but a lot of who you attract it's mostly musicians and like people that want to play heavy metal you know because there's no heavy metal you know stations or whatever and so we weren't we weren't quite sure how important it was, you know. Like, I mean, we it was like kind of. I mean, it was a great project because, like, radio. On the one hand, there's like that political dimension of like you know the power of influencing communications, and on from, coming from another direction, there's this cultural dimension of like music, you know, and everyone loves music and almost everyone was dissatisfied with the way that corporate America was shaping music at that time. And then the third direction for me that made it so interesting was that it was a very substantial technical challenge um, to learn what there is to learn about antennas and transmitters and all that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I had kind of renounced science in a lot of ways uh, in high school, but it's what I I'm like kind of naturally drawn towards is 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 sort of technological questions and so during college I studied solar energy but it was an absolute low point in history of solar energy I mean the the, the peak in the 1970s was past and it was like the Reagan years and like we had already gone to war so that oil would be cheap and I used to say like that that pirate radio was kind of like the solar energy movement of the 90s because it's like what attracted these kind of geeks you know that like wanted to figure out how circuits worked and all that sort of thing but it was in the service of social movements and um so yeah it was a it it worked out to be like a confluence of like of all these things that could keep my attention and when i when I got tired of thinking about the circuits, there was always the legal side, you know, and when there was like tired of the legal side, there was a community organizing side. And, you know, when I was tired of that, there was always the cultural side. And so it was pretty, it was, it was a pretty great meeting of all those things. And, you know, um, it's funny that I've stayed with it so long in different forms, in very different forms over the years, but partly it's because there are so many angles to attack it that you know in some ways i'm i'm credited with a lot a lot of um i've i've stuck with this thing so i've been able to like accumulate like you know influence over its over its history um but partly it's like there was enough of it that like i could do one part and maybe get bored with it but do a different part of it you know mm -hmm. um so that's like kind of a 
a great thing about it for me. We'll talk about the, the, the form of the station. Um, what is the programming like? I mean, clearly it's not just a person talking about social issues. I mean, is, is, is there a heavy metal DJ? I mean, is there a music element? What is, what is someone hearing when this, or should you read this thing first yeah. or what? Yeah. Um, Kate, would you like to do a dramatic recitation of the <laughs> Sure, <laughs> the I can read statement. the mission statement and then I can, maybe we can talk Look about Look at the program, yeah. 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 Um, so Radio Mutiny is a broadcasting station for people who are denied a voice in the mainstream media. Our all-volunteer group operates a micro-powered FM transmitter, similar to hundreds of radio stations that have sprung up across the country in response to the ever-tightening control of public information by elite media corporations. Radio Mutiny does not promote useless products, vapid lifestyles, or the soundbite assembly line ideology that passes for news in this country. We use the public airwaves for news, music, performance, and for communicating with each other about our real daily lives and communities. Radio Mutiny is rabidly non-hierarchical, decisively anti-authoritarian, avidly pro-feminist, and staunchly anti-racist. Our programming is anti-commercial, non-partisan, irreligious, and iconoclastic. Your radio dial was made for revolution. Yeah. <laughs> nice. That's a good statement. Um, but even and then in practice, then... Well, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but what were you saying? Yeah, even, even with all that, I almost felt like the programming was kind of secondary i mean we were for the first year we were underground and like trying to stay off the um radar of the media like the city paper reporting on it or um you know and really just advertising with uh flyers on telephone poles or at the co-op or something um and by word of mouth but the programming in collective meetings we talked about the programming and the DJs and people who weren't showing up for their shifts and um, what else we could get on the air and everything. Um, but I, I sort of felt like the station itself, like being on the air by itself was the reason for the station. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the programming was, uh, there were a lot of people we were up to, like 30 or 30 DJs at one time. Oh, we time. had a lot more. We had close to 60, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. So you were coming, I see you were coming at 91.3. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think for us in the collective, the programming was a little bit secondary, but I think for the DJs themselves, oh, yeah, that, they, they were, were very into their shows. Mm-hmm. You know, they mm-hmm. were like totally, they were all about the this show, you know, mm-hmm. so like, for example. We did have some really amazing shows. Um, yeah. One of my favorites was uh, the Condom Ladies show on Safer Sex and Drug Use. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a nurse who uh, had been working a lot with, um, was it Prevention Point? Was she mm-hmm. Prevention Point? And about harm reduction um, and how people who used uh, injection drugs and were sex workers could keep themselves safe. Um, and she did like that. She did a show about that, but translated it also to just the public in general. Um, and uh, there was Incarceration Nation, um, the the blanket man. He uh, was a, a prison activist who had been arrested for marijuana use and spent some time in prison and was... A year and a half. Oh, for, yeah. For, half for a day. smoking pot? It was actually for selling one hit of acid to an undercover policeman mm-hmm. in like a sting operation yeah oops <laughs> why was he the blanket man what does that mean it's from irish prisoners who went on hunger strike and were denied clothing and all they wore was blankets i think 
Yeah. I'm not sure exactly what that story was, but yeah. He was an amazing show. Mm-hmm. He, yeah. I mean, every week, like all the news of the whole prison industrial complex, I had never even heard about that set of problems before that. Mm-hmm. And it was just when people were starting to realize that like the real, the biggest mechanism of racism was no longer like really employment discrimination or other things, but it was like the prison industrial complex. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the first place I ran into that set of ideas was from him. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also, um, there was a lot of music too. I mean, this, uh, <laughs> the DJ called Emmanuel Labor, um, did a queer positive mix of country bluegrass, rockabilly punk and political rhetoric. Uh, there's, um, a ska show. That was wasn't, the wasn't late 90s. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there was a uh, Malinga who did mm-hmm. like the African report. It was like news of Africa every week. He actually did shoot two shows. One was mostly music, and one was mostly like news and public affairs. Um, yeah, Red Sun Rising was a good one. It was like Native American hip hop um, from from this there guy. Is such a thing. I didn't know, but You yeah. wouldn't know it by listening to the radio, would you? No. And then a lot uh, were, like, kind of personality-driven. There was, mm-hmm. like... We, almost all of our all of our programming was in the evenings after people were done with work, but there was this one, the Morning Glory Hour of Flowers. Every Thursday morning, she had been, like, a high school radio DJ at, like, the high school station that's out here somewhere. Um, and so she did, like, a wake-up wake up show... Um, along with, uh, yeah, uh, Henry Lucas also did the, um, a morning show as well. Is this all, so it's all coming out of one location? Like it's, it was all out, uh, out of the back of Not Squat. Yeah. So, so this is kind of a parade of interesting characters coming through and, you know, doing, doing, doing their thing. A little wearing on my housemates, but like. You know, that was how we all rolled at that time. So, like, they, they loved having, like, all these people coming and hanging out. And, and it um, was still a house where there had to be lots of work projects. In fact, the, I went over there tonight, and it's still a house where there's lots of work projects. There's, like, a list of projects on the refrigerator that needs to happen. But um, when at this time, there was a, a pole going through the kitchen um, with the that was at the front of the house, and that was kind of, I don't know, we used it as a break room, even though we shouldn't have or maybe not everybody did maybe i only did that but um the pole had a sign stuck to it that said don't lean on this or the house will explode <laughs> so it was, was that probably like, essentially true yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. <laughs> how could you resist the temptation to, to knock the house over when you see that sign there were there were actually two signs on it that said don't lean on this or the house will explode because like <laughs> <laughs> It was a great place. But the, the radio station was in um, kind of like, almost like a mudroom that was on the, it was a converted back porch. Um, and there was so much equipment in there and lots of old records and things that people had picked up from garage sales. And there was a separate entrance. So if you were a DJ, you had a key just to the back porch and then the, in, the rest of the house was locked off part of the time. And Except didn't we didn't, never really successfully locked it off. Yeah. <laughs> because the bathroom was inside the house, really. So yeah, right. the theory was that the DJs weren't supposed to be like just wandering through the rest of the house, but in practice, I think it pretty much happened. But, but no major issues. There or... was never like a giant problem, except this one time, actually after mutiny, 
um, when Radio Volta was there for a little while, um, there was like this one guy who just like wandered into our kitchen and saw a sign he didn't like about like uh, this woman was accusing this guy of, of raping her or something like that and he scrawled all over it and was like you know like rape is a matter of opinion blah 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 and like my <laughs> housemates freaked out like what the fuck kind of people are you bringing into this house and like you know like so it was like when well so he did One, the rape show on yeah <laughs> okay. oh god well he was after radio mutiny um i don't think he would have managed to stay very long at radio mutiny because we were like more politically conscious you know um i you know than that one was i mean both were politically conscious but we had like more of a strong culture of by that time like it was like kind of a weak project and so like people got away with more so during the time that the mutiny existed um were there attempts by FCC or any other authorities to shut your ass down? Mm -hmm. Eventually. Um, the, somebody, a reporter called us and said that they wanted to write a story and we told them no. Um, because we knew as soon as we started getting any kind of publicity that the FCC would show up. And so we told this person no, but they were really persistent and... Um, ended up writing the story anyway and putting it in the city paper. Um, and at that point, we decided, okay, well, our, like, our cover's broken. Let's just go full-on um, full activist with it and make the FCC answer for their policies. Um, well, one other thing is, like, it happened at the same exact time that that Dunifer court decision was overturned. Uh, not overturned, but like she finally ruled against Dunifer uh, on a technicality. Um, she did not say that under his essential argument was wrong, but she said that he really would have had to have applied to the FCC and been refused in order to be protected legally um, and to have standing to question the FCC's regulatory authority. So the FCC had started a wave of busts all across the country. They did more than I think they did over 500 busts over the course of you know just a few months there and so that was happening at the same time so we we're starting to hear about all these stations getting busted in other cities and um and she uh we got her not to write the story for a couple of weeks but then she did put a mention of us and then five days later is when we got our first approach by the fcc and it was kind of a funny story. It was, um, we were actually having an all DJ meeting um, about the political situation. We were like, you know, it's looking like the protection that we used to have from this lawsuit is no longer there. And like, what are we going to do about it? And we're having this kind of theoretical thing like, ah, they'll never get to us. Ah, you know, blah, blah, blah. Everyone's going around. Like, why should we change what we're doing? We're already doing fine. Like, you know, whatever. And at the same time as we're having this meeting in the storefront across the street um, with like, there were like 50 of us there, something like that. Mm -hmm. It was like a big, It was big a meeting. big meeting. I don't know about 50. There was a lot of us. I can't remember. But People was, were pretty concerned. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I get a call right in the middle of this. And this is before cell phones too. Um, I get a call from my housemate. And, you know, one thing about my house is that like people are always um, coming up to the door and knocking on it and being like, 
FCC, open up, motherfucker. And like, <laughs> and like, you know, we're all like, oh God, everyone thinks they're such a goddamn comedian, right? <laughs> yeah, like, you know. And something made my housemate, April Rosenblum, look, you know, hear the same thing. FCC, open up. And like, she looks through the peephole and there's actually like this old dude there with a couple of cops. <laughs> and, and, you know, he's like, I'm with the FCC, you have to open the door. And she's like, do you have a warrant? And he's like, we'll get a warrant and we'll kick your door down. And she's like, well, you come on back with that warrant. And uh, that's one of my favorite examples of excellent activist parenting skills. Um, she was 17, my, my housemate, April Rosenblum. And she, she was the daughter of Art and Judy Rosenblum, who are longtime Philadelphia fixtures. He had run printing presses for the Black Panthers and all kinds of things. And, um, and so I can't think of very many 17-year-olds that would know to, like, say no to the police, you know, <laughs> to come in and raid the, raid the building. Um, so she calls me. I, I turn to the whole meeting. I'm like, okay. Up until now, this has been an academic discussion. However, uh, it's it's not, <laughs> you know. Um, and uh, so we all flipped out. You know, we started running around and like taking the equipment out of the house. And like he left, you know, but we moved the equipment in different places and tried to hide it. And then we had this like ridiculous continuation of the meeting in the back room of my house. Were you there for that? The ridiculous... Yeah. So we did what, like, any good um, activists would do when you're faced with your first federal bust. You were all like, It's your fault! You were the one that talked to that reporter! No, it's your fault! You didn't hide the antenna well enough! Blah, blah, blah. That's why the left is so effective. I mean, it was pretty... The antenna was pretty obvious that there was this giant antenna on the roof of the house. You can see it from everywhere. And uh, so it's everybody's fault. We did the whole circular firing firing squad. But... um, I mean, one thing that was great, I mean, it was a very activist house. I mean, half of Act Up, like some of the core team of Act Up was living there at the time. Um, people from all different movements um, were living there. And, and the house had been really committed as an activist institution, you know, to, to make it easier for activists to live. And, and this um, point was late 90s, right? Yeah. Say what? It was uh, December 1997. Yeah. Okay. And... Um, so we can't, like, after we all yelled at each other for several hours, like, we came up with what I think was, like, one of the best plans that we ever could have come up with, which was we decided to, like, turn it around on them and take the game, like, put it right back in their face. And so um, I got to do maybe, like, my favorite press call that I've ever gotten to make. Um, I called all the, like, you know, a bunch of us did, um, but I would call... Um, like the, from like some of the act up press lists, call the newspapers and TV stations and whatever. I was like, hello, my name is Pete Tredish and I'm from the Radio Mutiny Collective. Until three days ago, we refused all contact with the capitalist media. (laughs) However, the FCC came and threatened to kick down our door for operating a 20 watt community radio station. And so... 
Monday, high noon, in front of Benjamin Franklin's printing press, we are going to turn our transmitter back on, and we dare the chairman of the FCC, William Kennard, to come on down and put the handcuffs on us if he thinks what we're doing is so damn wrong. Mm -hmm. Click. <laughs> no questions, no nothing, just like... There was there was so many we got so much press out of that. We got this giant we built a giant silver switch, like an off that's an off at the bottom and on at the top and you know, like the size of a an oven. Mm -hmm. And um at at noon we counted or like twelve thirty, whatever, we counted down three, two, one and turned the switch from off to on and like started broadcasting again. <laughs> We had like a car battery with like that was powering this little transmitter and like we're in front of the printing press and we're talking on the microphone, talking into it and I got on the news that like the and um I think I was on channel on NBC or something and the I was identified only as communicate, which I think <laughs> is the best thing that's ever happened. Yeah, I guess a slight sidebar, you know, uh Petri this is not your given name, communicate. I mean, we said your name, but where, where did your, I guess you're sort of there, <laughs> fairly obvious and quite clever, but. Noms de Air. Noms de Air, right. And then what was the genesis of your uh, name? I don't even remember. It just came to you... me one day. Do you remember? No, just, I remember you wanted to do a science show. And... Yeah, yeah, I wanted to do a science, I never got to do very much programming, but like, I wanted to do a science show until I liked the, you know, it was that. And, um. But all of us took names like that. Like there was like Millie Watt and um, Antenna, you know, just like all the things, like, yeah. you know, along this, Kale was Noah Vale. Noah Vale. Yeah, Noah Vale. And my favorite was Melissa. She was a little before your time, but she was, she was Bertha Venus. I met yeah. them later in Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. So what happened with the giant switch and the, and the, you know, the, the publicity stunt thing. We, we also announced at that thing our um, five-point plan for, a uh, five-step plan to challenge the FCC and maintain our, the neighborhood communication resource. Do you remember exactly I think we actually called was? it our seven-point platform for how we were going to make the FCC's life really suck if they did not <laughs> legalize community radio. Uh -huh. I think that's, that's Paul's terminology. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, um, yeah, yeah. And of course they were like total, you know, we were totally crazy. I mean, we were like, we are going to sue the FCC with the, with the, the support of the ACLU. We had talked to them like once or something, you know, like, and we are going to host a, a pirate radio conference in Philadelphia and we are going to... I don't even remember what all those points I were. I guess if you're speaking in a grandiose way, people yeah. are going to pay attention, mm -hmm. so you might as well just throw all this shit out. Oh, yeah, we were totally See what sticks like, to the wall in the end. Yeah, that's totally <laughs> it. I mean, our biggest one was we said that for every station that the FCC harassed or tried to take off the air, we were going to go on tour around the country and put up 10 more in its place. And, you know, that was our promise to them. And... Um, you know, we got home after that. We're all like looking at each other. And we're like, wow, we're like totally bluffing out there. <laughs> like, well, we, I mean, you did end up going on and Radio Mutiny uh, morphed into Prometheus Radio Project, which did exactly that. Yeah, um, yeah. At the, at the time, I think the, 
the main thing that we did was host a conference in Philadelphia, the East Coast Microbroadcasting Conference, where we just did everything by mail, um, invited all the the pirate radio the radio pirates that we knew, the other stations um, like on this side of the country to a conference in spring, like five months after. So this is spring of uh, 98 then at yeah. this point. Okay. Um, and we... We had a conference, there were like maybe 200 people there, and we housed them in just in uh, people's homes in the neighborhood, housed them and fed them with um, the help of food, not bombs. And Lots of spaghetti. Yeah. yeah. It was really good food. I thought yeah, it was, it was pretty good. good. Yeah. yeah. And um, we rented uh, a public school. Yeah. The and only thing that we forgot in renting that public school was that, like, it had all chairs for little children. Yeah. So we were all like yeah, sitting, sitting around on like little, <laughs> little kid chairs that were like this tall, you know. But um, we did the whole thing for like $3,000 or something for like a whole weekend. And we had some, a cup, like a really great party too in one of the warehouses in, uh, which house was that? Um, oh God, I don't remember that. Yeah. Uh, one of the warehouses on Lancaster Avenue. No, like yeah. like Stalag thirteen or no warehouse or yeah. a fake house. Kill time. Those. Kill time. I, th- yeah. I think it was yeah it was I it was either at fake house or kill time. Yeah, because Anita had been uh, a radio mutiny DJ who lived at maybe fake house. I think mm-hmm. I can't remember which one, but yeah, yeah, that is right. That was a good party. Mm-hmm. And the workshops were all like. Uh, there was a transmitter repair workshop and um, also. Um, Gosh, I can't even remember all of them, but... Oh, yeah. I think there was a schedule somewhere in there, but mm-hmm. it was like... But the kind of the big thing was that, like, like about three weeks before the conference was supposed to happen, the chief of enforcement mm-hmm. of the FCC... Richard E. Lee. ...invited himself to the conference. He, like, sent an email to Kathleen, I think, mm-hmm. and he was like, I would like to attend your pirate radio conference, mm-hmm. and I would like to inform people about... You know, oh, the, like the legal realities of what they're <laughs> yeah. doing. Oh, or something, or no, what? he, um, we had, uh, there was a session about enforcement, about oh, um, yeah. what to do when the FCC knocks, and uh, he volunteered himself to conduct that workshop. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was, like, where was he coming from on this? Well, he was a nut job, that he guy. Was, I, I mean, that. was there any, him. was there a sympathy that, that was coming out of him in some way, or what? I think like, a little bit. He was newish, and I think he, Kind of under, he wasn't necessarily on our side, but I think he Certainly kind not. of, yeah. <laughs> right. but he I, had a good sense of humor. He was a funny guy. And like, I didn't think he thought of us as criminals. I mm-hmm. think he thought um, that, you know. He probably thought we were good kids. Yeah, I think the, <laughs> the, 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 the history of pirate radio was much more that it would be like, like some smart, 16 year old would figure out how to make a radio station and broadcast curse words or whatever, you know? And like, basically like they would come, like the FCC would come and they would find this kid and they were like, you're very clever kid, (laughs) but I'm going to tell your mom if, if you keep on doing this, you know? And like, that would be kind of like with hackers or something. Yeah. yeah. Maybe they get absorbed into the, into the system to kind of work for them or maybe they just get told to, you know, behave. Exactly. Yeah. And so we were different in that, we really thought that what we were doing was right. We weren't getting away with something. We were like, this was civil disobedience. And that was like, I think that was a big difference is like 
it was like the first time people really thought of communications as being something that you could co commit civil disobedience against an unjust law, an unjust system of giving out licenses only to corporations, pretty much. And um, I don't know if he bought our argument, but I think that he understood in some ways the difference between like someone who's like whatever, you know, just like doing it for fun versus someone who's like making a political, taking a political stance and questioning the validity of the, of the laws. And um, so it was pretty funny. He, we, we did, we argued about it quite a bit and eventually we, we said, okay, you can come. But we turned it into like kind of a centerpiece. Um, we were not going to let him tell you what to do when the FCC comes, comes knocking. We turned it into a debate about the validity of their licensing system and we had it over at Calvary. We made it the opening plenary, yeah. um, and we had our our lawyer and condom lady and mm. Richard Lee and someone else on the on the plenary, and we only invited him for that. He couldn't come to the rest of the conference. I'm sure they had goons like disguised to attend yeah. the conference anyway. But we said that they didn't couldn't have an overt presence, um, and we said that they couldn't use any information that they gathered there for enforcement, which like God knows, like. You know, yeah. but How do you enforce that? Yeah, but but they agreed to that, and there was no obvious, you know, repercussion immediately. Actually, but um, it was kind of funny what we did to him, though. I mean, like we had him sitting there on this panel, and he's sitting there behind a sign that says "FCC goons, back off." <laughs> <laughs> and, um, we he, also, he asked for that sign. Or no, he asked for the one that said, um, FCC, go away, micro radio is here to stay. And he yeah. brought us a present in the form of um, a Borg figurine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He later um, signed his emails to us, like, with, like, resistance is futile. <laughs> <laughs> the one other thing that we did, and this was with, uh, with Bernie's help, um, he... Uh, it was very early days of cell phones. Nobody had cell phones at that point, but Bernie did because he's like a phone hacker kind of guy, you know? And so he's always at the cutting edge of technology. And so we had the radio station running that night and he actually, through his cell phone, was capturing all of the sound of this opening plenary and this debate between the FCC and us. And he's putting it on the pirate radio and about like halfway through the radio show, halfway through the debate, he announces to everybody, including Richard Lee, that you're all on pirate radio right now. <laughs> and Richard Lee's like, oh, <laughs> you guys. <laughs> like, I loved that, that conference because, I mean, I loved it that the FCC invited themselves because to me it seemed like them acknowledging us as a force to be reckoned with instead of ignored or like mm -hmm. ignore them and they'll go away or you know if we don't if we pretend they're not there they won't have any influence but this was like all right we got to do something about this right mm -hmm. it must be a kind of a curious position for them to be in because although you're, you're you're coming across you know from a leftist point of view it's not like you're coming in as like white supremacist or, or advocating you know acts of terrorism or something like that i mean when you're kind of embracing all of the community these are sort of positive Positive words, positive voices that you're putting out into the world. It's not something that's meant to disturb or upset people. Although, you know, there are probably some people who find some of those ideas to be upsetting, but they weren't overtly 
I don't know, insurrectionary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and the conference really was like, it was amazing the range of people who were there and we all got along. There was, there was a radio station, because a lot of um, radio pirates were conservative Christians too, who yeah. didn't like what was on the, like the regular radio dial. Um, so we had promise keepers there yeah, and like, um, yeah. uh, black, black nationalists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everybody, yeah, yeah. everybody got yeah. along that weekend. Really, anyway. yeah, yeah. Really respected yeah. each other. We were there for one thing. Yeah. Was yeah. It was, it was very cool. It was, I mean, I think I later kind of came to understand a little bit more of the psychology of the FCC. I mean, a lot of people that ended up working there, you know, they could have gotten jobs in corporations. Um, but they ended up working for government because, for whatever reason, they had gotten into communications policy and they thought that it's important that there be a certain amount of limit on the power of corporations. And, you know, that's what, um, you know, you go back to like someone like Noam Chomsky or whatever, who's essentially an anarchist, but he's like, you, you got to get real. Like the only thing that can limit the unchecked power of capitalism at this point in history is like some tiny drib of limitation by government at this point and so um a lot of them were like yeah you know the free market is gonna tear itself apart and destroy itself if there isn't like some government role in 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 regulating it and you know so they looked at us and on the one hand they think we're totally off our rockers you know like we talk crazy and blah 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 um on the other hand like some of us, like, some of them really saw, um, oh my gosh, you know, some of these people really care about communications and power and, like, all these questions. And, you know, I remember one FCC guy who I talked with was like, you know, like, I got into working for the government because I did believe that this was all important. And, um, and then I spent my entire career processing mergers between... between giant corporations and you know that everybody's lying you know everyone's just like trying to like manipulate you and the rules that you make in such a way that they will make more money and so when you guys like the pirates came along we were like well we were dumbfounded by like how naive you all were but but then we were also kind of like you know just sort of really excited that someone else thought our work was important like you know like some people that were not making money from it people that were not you know like trying to further their career or find another way to fleece the public people just like had this genuine like thought that this was an important part of politics was who controlled the airwaves and so i think that that you know ended up you know winning us a lot of things um you know further on down the line um, and started to turn some some ears at the FCC. When we got past like the enforcement people, I think, we, you know, and started to get towards some of the policy people, we started getting a lot more sympathetic hearing. Okay. I'm going to turn the light off, but we need to... Okay. Anything else? Sorry. Okay. Uh, okay. I feel like we need to, to move forward a bit so that the interview doesn't go on mm-hmm. forever. Um, then what... what precipitates the demise of the radio mutiny incarnation of the project and then what happens going forward from there 
Well, you know, there were there were a couple things. I mean, we had our own set of internal contradictions, and there was like a lot of pressure on us, you know, from the outside. And so I think some of the some of the DJs, like they were really just down there, like because they wanted to hear people to hear their klezmer ska music, or you know, and like it was getting much more serious than they really cared about, you know. Um, others were, you know, really down for anything, but they were, you know, it, it was it was getting scarier because we were like getting past the point of like free passes and whatever. The FCC actually ended up visiting six different times. We moved several times our transmitter site, which was a lot of work and was very taxing and finding places. Um, and the group became, under that pressure, became more fractious and people were, um, you know, it was like harder for everyone to understand our strategy and our decisions. There was more of a division between the collective um, and, you know, the five or the five or seven of us that were at the center of the decision-making and then all the DJs. So that was a strain. Um, even among us, like, you know, the pressure was like starting to like make us turn on each other to some extent. Not really badly, but, you know, the way these things always happen, you know, is like, you know, the, the, the smaller contradictions get amplified when you are put at risk, you know? Um, and, um, you know, there are also like some doubts that I had, um, you know, because we were all super politically correct and, and whatever, um, Mimi had been doing a lot of the recruiting for, um, for new shows and she had worked with several nonprofits around the city that we thought we really wanted to have a show. Um, there was like a black women's health project. There was like, I don't know, a couple different ones. And what we just started finding was like, I kind of felt like there was a little bit of a glass ceiling on what we were able to do because most of us were young. It was by no means all white. I think it was like maybe about a quarter of people of color were involved in the station, and, you know. Um, but, but we started to realize that like, that we were asking a lot of people to take a chance on going to jail or something like that for like having a radio program. And, you know, that, you know, there was some privilege involved in being able to take those chances. I and mean, it was harder for people with children to do that. It was harder for people with jobs and responsibilities to, to take that risk. And um, I think that uh, I started having the sensibility that like, as cool as it was to be like breaking the law in this way, I started to become more and more convinced that operating community radio station should not be something that you have to be like mischievous and a little crazy to do. It should be like just a basic right, like of everybody in like a democratic society. And, and I decided that, you know, there's one interpretation of radicalism, which is like, it's defying authority or it's defying the laws or whatever. Um, and so by that definition, it's like the best thing is to always be illegal and to always be pushing the boundary. But to me, I was think I was starting to think much more that the more important question is who is on the air, whose voice is getting amplified. And if it's really just a bunch of like, 
just out of college white kids like how radical is that really like isn't the more radical thing to like actually change who is getting these radio stations who is getting on the air and if and if it means getting involved with the FCC's processes and changing those laws in such a way that you can actually make a difference to like who is on the air um, I start to think of that as actually a much more radical course, like in radical in the sense of like fundamental change, as opposed to like, you know, replaying a stage drama between, you know, between forces, you know. Um, so, so those were all things that were coming. The FCC visited six times, and the the very last time was in June, and actually Richard Lee came personally and busted the station. Um, and he came all the way up from Washington, D.C., and they knew when the station started every night, and actually the DJ who was on shift was late. And so the FCC, they couldn't wait any longer because this dude didn't show up for his shift, and um, they went in, and he turned on the radio station himself, <laughs> and he said, this is Richard Lee, chief of enforcement for the FCC, the station you've been listening to, Radio Mutiny, is an illegal operation, and we are terminating it now. And like, you know, <laughs> do you have a recording of this? <laughs> no, but people heard it, and it was it was so funny that he did that. Did you hear it? I didn't hear it. I heard uh, people called me like within a few minutes after, mm -hmm. and we all went down after. You know, and... there was one time when we knew they were coming, and uh, we put them off be by. Um... The condom lady broadcast was doing her show and she just extended her show the whole time and she broadcast completely naked and yeah. said okay you, you guys can come the FCC wants to come come ahead but you know you're gonna have to take a totally naked lady to jail and it's gonna be really uncomfortable <laughs> you better bring a towel yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was hilarious yeah yeah and um, so and every time we did like another like little stunt um, one time we broadcasted in front of the, the Liberty Bell after they came, and another time we did, um, one of my favorites was, there was this Benjamin Franklin printing press, um, thing outside of City Hall, still there, um, it's this big statue, it's like twice life size, and so we knew that there would be a bust sooner or later, and so we had gone beforehand and like measured the statue and like made all this stuff for it. So um, we made him a pair of headphones and a microphone and like we made a sign that said, necessity knows no law, which is a quote from Benjamin Franklin. And like, um, I support pirate radio was like a big like, you know, thought bubble, you know, speech bubble sort of thing. And so like it's, six in the morning like we went down there and we dressed him up with this whole little setup and took photos and like and then sent that to the press like the next day you know like in in association with the with the bust um so yeah so i mean and then once they actually did bust i mean we were all very divided we were very tired it was very it was a very rough one and um, I think, you know, we just, uh, everyone went to, wanted to go in different directions, 
There was like an all women's radio station idea for a minute there. Yeah, uh, Sarazia and Diane and I were, we built a transmitter in my kitchen. I moved to Center, Center City. We built yeah. a transmitter and dreamed about um, sugar free radio. Oh, yeah, sugar free radio. That's never right. got on the air. That was the women's. Mm-hmm. Women with that, just eyes. No man in the women, men. With, with the why you know, you're talking ne- about? Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can't even really remember. I mean, it was. But it was a it was a really great time building that transmitter. They would come over once a week and we'd work on it and we, we burned it to a crisp. Again, it wasn't wasn't functional by the time we got it done. <laughs> there was this crazy dude who actually turned me and Diane into the FCC. And that guy Scott. He was oh like, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. he turned us into the FCC for whatever reason. And then um, he was a programmer. He wasn't happy with like the hour that he had for his show and he kept on missing his shift and then he was like I'm missing my shift because I want more time you know and I'm like oh god he's told mess but yeah so we all just sort of another thing is I started going on tour um and everyone else had jobs just one extent or another but I, I was supporting myself as a carpenter at that time so I could like work and then take a couple weeks off and you know just go and so I started like driving up and down um, the East Coast, the South, around as far as I can manage, and just speaking, you know, basically for like gas money or whatever, and helping people start stations and transmitters. And so, one thing that happened for me was that my picture of it got much larger than the radio station. Like, I started having all these friends in other places, and um, and I started thinking of it less as being part of Radio Mutiny and just more as being this nationwide movement. And um, so I started, you know, as the station fell apart, you know, I looked at it and I was like, wow, this is just like kind of, I don't know what to do about this group, but I know that there's like a very vibrant moment here of like, of national organizing. Um, And so I, I switched my attention from like what to do with the, the shards of radio mutiny after the bust and i started focusing on well essentially revenge like i i wanted to organize a nationwide march of pirates on the fcc's headquarters and um so we did that um in the fall of 98 how did that come off did it go well it was was great it ran a pirate flag up the flagpole in front of the fcc (laughs) In front of the National Association of Broadcasters. Mm-hmm, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was kind of, we did a kind of a very similar conference, the one that we did here. So we had a weekend at the Latin American Youth Center uh, where we did all these workshops on building transmitters and like all that kind of thing. And, uh, and then I had developed some strong ties with some friends in Washington, D.C., um, and it was a group called Stand for Our Neighbors, which had come together because of immigration raids in the neighborhood. And they decided that as a community project, they wanted to have a radio station that would like bring everyone closer together. And so we launched that station on Sunday night with a big party in a church and a live broadcast. And I really, I literally thought that that radio station would get busted in the first 15 minutes of its existence. But actually, the FCC never, ever has busted that station. Oh, it's it's, still, it still exists it's, now? It's still on the air How do you now. think that, that that is possible? 
what has happened? I, they're within an, a mile and a half of the FCC's headquarters. That's and really... I, you know, the FCC is kind of complaint driven. Um, and so usually there's a commercial broadcaster that's like, this station is competing with me. I want to get rid of it. But if nobody complains, like they, their enforcement people are just like, you know, like they, they're always chasing after the complaints. They don't have time to just like go investigate for themselves. So I think that's a lot of it. So, and then we had a debate on Monday morning at the Freedom Forum, which is like this think tank or whatever. Um, between us and like a journalist from the, the broadcasting industry and um, you know all these like sort of Washington policy wonk type people and, and whatever and um, and then uh, we had this pirate march which was just so hilarious I mean I think we huge. had like 90 people maybe or something like that which is and, huge for Watch, you know, yeah. we had like enormous puppets. Yeah, puppets uh, are always good. Mm-hmm. It was uh, we called it a meta puppet because it was a puppet controlling a puppet controlling a puppet. <laughs> it was actually made by Scott Bybin, um, and there was like a fourteen foot tall one of the corporations, and it had like a giant pyramid for the head with the all seeing eye, and it was like General Electric, GTE you know, Westinghouse, blah, 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 you know, all these giant companies. And it, in turn, had marionette strings in front of it, and that was, like, 12 feet tall, and that was Morgan Andrews, um, who was dressed as a giant gorilla with a television set for its head. And um, that said, NBC, CBS, Clear Channel, whatever, you know, so the media corporations. And then, in turn, those controlled a puppet which was like about a nine foot tall um chairman of the fcc william canard who we called canardio and he was dressed as a puppet he was like he had like you know the pinocchio outfit on and he had this giant nose that would grow when he would tell lies about about community radio and um so he had this meta puppet that would march the street we did the same thing with the free speech switch. We um, got in front of the FCC and we threw the switch and we turned on our transmitters. We had all these people dressed as like FCC nerds. Like they had like silver um, aluminum foil hats in the form of pyramids. Uh-huh. And they had like pirate radio detectors that they walked around in. And we secretly hid the pirate radio station. We like, we hacked together like up like a little kid's walkie-talkie so that you wouldn't know where the actual transmitter was. It was hidden in someone's backpack. But we talked into that, and that would broadcast to everyone's boom boxes, which mm-hmm. was our sound system, and which was a total noisy mess. But it, it did just kind of barely work. And, um, and we had a little play with the puppets, and then we marched on the National Association of Broadcasters, um, which was our big opponent even bigger than the FCC and um, you know they only had a couple of security guards there and they had this like really ugly corporate plaza thing with this like nasty little um, plaza with like a stupid waterfall sort of thing and they had two flags and we had scoped them out before and so with the puppets we like push past all of the 
the guards, who may have been trained for people, but they did not know how to handle giant puppets. And like we just pushed past that, take over their plaza, surround their flagpoles, and like we pulled down the National Association Broadcasters flag, and we ran up the Jolly Roger, mm -hmm. like they do in like pirate movies, you know, <laughs> like with the like that. And um, some kid from South Carolina ended up getting arrested. She was like two, 16. Two kids, yeah. They like pushed him up against the wall. They hadn't taken yeah. the flag. They just grabbed the first two people out of the crowd they could and kind of yeah. held them hostage until they changed the flag, which didn't yeah. happen. No, yeah, they, we, we didn't know who took the flag, actually. It just got like taken and trampled and some guy ran away with it. I think I knew who it was. But, but anyway, yeah, so... That was talked about for years afterwards. And one real funny thing about that was that we weren't sure what effect that was going to have. But, um, you know, the chairman of the FCC was William Kennard, who was actually a Clinton appointee, and he had actually wanted to be a reporter for Pacifica um, in college, but they, they couldn't pay him, so he, he didn't do it. And uh, he ended up becoming a telecommunications lawyer. And he ended up being the first African-American chairman of the FCC. And um, for this and a couple of other reasons, he started to like become sympathetic to what we were doing. And he, uh, for several months after that, um, you know, when you get to know, like, the obscure world of FCC politics, you know, like, the chairman's always giving a speech to an industry association, and they always start off with, like, some anecdote about golf or football or some crap, you know? Something they can relate to. Yeah, They're a human yeah. being and not an android. Exactly. Well, so what happened was, for the next, like, four or five months after this thing, his stump speech became, you know what happened? The other day at the FCC, all these crazy pirates came there and they said I was a puppet of you guys. Imagine that. And you're telling me that I'm not deregulating you enough, but they're calling me a puppet of the broadcasters. You know, and like, and he's like, um, and he was obviously like just totally tickled by it. He thought it was like the funniest thing that had ever happened. And so, um, he was like, I've got, I'm going to show them. <laughs> and so he actually opened up a rulemaking to change the rules in a number of the ways that we recommended. And so I think we're getting to the end of it. But that's how Prometheus Radio Project was born, was, you know, a couple of us, when we started to see, I mean, we had fallen into something that was like way bigger than anything we understood. I mean, I didn't know anything about law. I didn't know anything about federal regulations, rulemaking processes, passing legislation through Congress. I mean, I was an activist and certainly touched those areas, but was not trained in, in that kind of way. And, um, but I started to realize that, you know, it seemed like actually our demands were about to be, get met and, and the law was going to change in response to what we had done. And so myself and some friends from some other um, pirate radio stations, um, Sarzia, Greg Ruggiero, um, David, Mike Eisenmenger, we started, we were like, okay, we, we need to form an organization to deal with, you know, it's like, you know, the puppy has managed to catch the wheel, the, the tire of the car after chasing after it. Like, now what do we do, you know? 
So, um, so that was how Prometheus started. I, I usually give that as the starting date of Prometheus. It was like late October or early October of 1998 when we transformed from like basically a pirate West Philly organization into like a national organization advocating for um, changes of the way that radio is mm -hmm. regulated. So Kate, you didn't continue on then in this mm -hmm. in this incarnation. Was there was there a reason why you I mean, you lost interest or gone another direction or what was the? Um. Well, I'd, my work at the cultural environment movement turned out to be a total bust, um, and I and it was it was actually a little bit scarring what happened there. So I, I kind of quit doing everything thing media related um and there and there have been a few times in my life where I've changed everything all at once like I change what projects I'm doing and my job and the people I hang out with and where I live and like whoever I'm dating and that that's what happened that summer one of those things like I just um took on a whole different life and so communicate was Oversville. There's, yeah, there's still a couple people who I see on the street in West Philly and they'll say, hey, communicate, which I <laughs> just, you know, revel in. Um, but I think where Radio Mutiny has come back um, for me lately is uh, in the form of the Rebellious Nursing Conference, which I modeled a lot like the, with the work that I did. I mean, which certainly wasn't in a vacuum. It was um, only successful like the Radio Mutiny Conference because there were so many people working on it and everyone did what they said they were going to do. Um, well, why don't we talk but, about that for a few minutes then. Uh, if you could explain, you know, what is the idea... First, you are a nurse, mm -hmm. yes. And what is um, the idea behind the rebellious nursing? Who came up with that? What's the whole...? Um, it was a project of Sarah Lipkin, who is a graduate nursing student at, um, at Yale who was looking for some kind of radical nursing organization. Like there's the association, the American Nurses Association and like all kinds of different nursing associations that you can join and get their publications. And when their publications come to you, they're just filled with advertisements for drugs. And it's just drugs, 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 drugs all over the place. And there's not, there's, there is no, um, like radical nurses association that's really focused on um, health as a form of social justice and you know bringing and keeping people healthy instead of treating them when they're sick um, and really giving people the means to keep themselves healthy and um, it's like nurse, nursing for the people there's nothing like that mm -hmm. so Sarah decided that she was going to create her own organization um, and I met her pretty soon after the planning for that started and uh, we decided to have it in Philadelphia. I'm like, oh, we can just do what we did with Radio Mutinies um, and do it as cheaply as possible and have people, put people up in the neighborhood and um, make it as um, participatory as possible instead of just people sitting up in, in front of a room on a panel talking at you. Um, and no corporate sponsors. Like with Radio Mutiny, the with the conference, we didn't, we got a grant, like maybe a little grant here and there, but it was mostly funded with um, 
people paying 25, a sliding scale fee for people to come to the conference, like 25 bucks or something, which is what we did for the nursing conference. Um, so there was no, there was no money coming from anywhere. I mean, it was all mm -mm. coming in from just like, the individuals even, coming in. Yeah. We never even thought of corporate sponsorship. Um, it just, it, it wouldn't have made sense to us. I don't think, cause that's not what we were. It I'm just, sure Glaxo does not want to give you money or Pfizer or any of these corporations. No, anyway. well, towards the, as the, also the conference in the planning took on a much larger, uh, became much larger than we ever expected it to be. We thought maybe a hundred people would come and we had to close registration, which we never thought of doing, um, at the beginning because we, because more people registered than can fit, could fit in the venue that we had gotten. Um, and so we never even really thought about sponsorship, but as, the conference got more and more awesome. People started calling us. We got one call from somebody who said that uh, she represents uh, RN to BSN nursing, online nursing school, and wanted to know if she could come table or at the conference or if there were any sponsorship opportunities. And I heard that message. I was like, ha, sponsorship opportunities, what? <laughs> and, and, and it wasn't until then that I realized that we actually didn't it never even crossed our minds to do, to sell out like that. Um, so we put on a conference as cheaply as possible to make it accessible to as many people as possible because nurses working in hospitals make a lot of money, can make money, but um, nurses working with uh, like public interest groups just get, you know, nonprofit salaries. And those were the people who were coming. Um, and so we put the whole thing on, financed just entirely by a, on a sliding scale fee with um, whoever registered for the conference. And it worked. Yeah, 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 it was massively successful. I mean, for me, it was, uh, I was so involved with the planning of it that when the weekend happened, it was, it was kind of surreal, but um, all of the feedback that we've gotten has been, like, people said that it's the first time that they've ever been in a space where their nursing identities and their um, social justice identities were the same, could be the same thing, and they didn't have to, like, pretend to be only one or the other. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so we're going to have, like, we're starting with publications and going to, or, like, like a zine, kind of, um, and we're going to have more conferences, but on the West Coast next time, somebody else gets to plan it. Right, right, that's good. <laughs> I recommend San Francisco, a nice place to visit. Okay. <laughs> um, going over to Prometheus, I mean, I feel like uh, it's it's a massive subject, you know, that you've been involved with, or you were involved with for, what, 13 years, did you say? Mm -hmm. uh, which would, I guess, you know, at, at this stage of our conversation, be kind of difficult to encompass all of it. Um, so that's another conversation, another day. Yeah, I feel like I, I mean I don't, you know, coming into this thing, I wanted to make sure that that was something that was covered. I didn't realize that the first part was going to be so so fascinating and so vast. Yeah. Um, so I, well, uh, yeah, I think the prehistory in some ways, like the the larger thing, is a story that's much more told. But where it came from is like you know kind of it's a it's an interesting thing i can say like what its overall impact has been like, yeah i mean i kind of like for someone who had would have say no idea what this is other than what they've heard you know up to this point in the conversation can you kind of explain what it is and then what you've in effect done over the course of 13 years yeah well i mean after we started getting the support of the fcc um i became my life got a lot more 
boring. And I, instead of teaching people how to build pirate stations, I started participating in rulemakings and working a lot with lawyers, working a lot with engineers. Um, I eventually became a radio engineer, certified radio engineer. Um, and in 2000, um, the new rules were passed and they started taking applications for legal community radio stations. Um, so, I mean, I, not to get too, too technical with it, but what then did they, did they agree to in terms of, you know, community radio stations? They, they obviously changed their, their minds to some degree. What did they give you? Well, um, they started releasing, uh, they said they wrote a whole new set of rules specifically for what are called low power FM radio stations. Because before the, I don't know if we actually addressed this in the conversation, like the problem wasn't so much the content on mass media. It was, um, we, we weren't just dissatisfied with the music. It was impossible for a community, community radio station to start because it was basically illegal against federal regulations because you had to spend like millions of dollars for, to do like engineering research on, um, whatever station you wanted to start and you had to, and there wasn't a, a category for a radio station below a certain number of Watts, which was huge, like enough to cover the giant, you know, giant city. And we, so there, there just wasn't any way to get a community radio station on the air. And that's what the FCC changed. Yeah. Oh, is it going back for one second to radio mutiny? I'm curious, what was, what was your, your range? Um, you know, it was kind of it was kind of big considering. I mean, we only had twenty watts. The antenna was pretty tall, and we were on a, at the top of a hill. Yeah, and we um, people could hear us going over the bridge into oh, Jersey. Jersey. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. not consistently. Like you know, some people would be like three miles away, and they couldn't hear us. But so it was spotty. But but at times it was quite large. Um, and uh, yeah. So, I mean, essentially what what happened was the FCC passed a new set of rules, and then after that, it got even, like, I, I kept on going on tour, but I was teaching people how to fill out the forms and how to how to build radio stations, and so, um, and uh, and then, just briefly, the, the broadcasters were not able to win at the FCC, so they went to Congress, and they, kind of like a worm eating out out the apple, they managed to hollow out our success by imposing additional technical restrictions on the power radio stations. And um, what those meant was that we were able to build a lot of radio stations in rural areas, but almost no urban areas qualified for a low power FM license. Mm -hmm. So the top 50 urban areas, none of them had a radio, a new low power radio license. So a lot of people thought we had totally failed, actually, because they never saw one um, where over 75% of the American population lives. Mm -hmm. Um, So for the next 10 years or so, I built a lot of stations in like, not New Orleans, but in Opelousas, Louisiana, and not in San Francisco, but in Oroville, California, and not in Seattle, but in Spokane, Washington. You know, so I Mm -hmm. built a lot of stations in small towns with Prometheus. And we also campaigned in Congress to get the law passed to overturn the larger technical restrictions. One thing about it was the FCC was really mad because they are used to having authority over the radio dial. And what the NAB did was they 
went over the FCC's head and took away their authority to grant 100-watt radio licenses, which everybody said was like, this is totally unprecedented, this is ridiculous. And like, so a lot of like FCC engineers like got there, got, got up in arms kind of, they were like, you know, a bunch of Congress jerks can't tell me how to like allocate 100-watt radio licenses, like that is ridiculous. And so, you know, we, we ended up forming a better relationship with the FCC over time. Obviously, we're not as powerful as like a $27 million a year lobbying organization, but, you know, we kind of um, ended up, um, you know, being able to, you know, be pretty persuasive about changing the regulations there. So there are about 800 new radio, uh, radio stations across the country. Not all of them are progressive. Some of them belong to churches. Some of them belong. It's just a, it's totally content neutral. It's just an opportunity to build stations that are to serve a small town or a neighborhood. And in 2010, we passed a bill which rescinded the, the limitations on the FCC, got the FCC back their authority, and the FCC has, um, in October, they just opened up their first national filing window for low power FM where you could actually apply in the cities. And so just today I was talking to a group I helped apply in Los Angeles. There are a bunch in Minneapolis. There are a bunch, uh, there are several in Philadelphia, um, legal licenses that'll, that'll come out of it. So, um, yeah, so, so that's ultimately, I mean, and now Prometheus is like a 13, 14 year old organization and um, I quit it because I was like, I can't fundraise for this thing anymore. <laughs> did you did you set up stations outside uh, of the U.S. as well? Yeah, I've done a lot of work outside the United States, and I'm trying to focus more there. So was that under Prometheus, or was that something of your own? I, I did a little bit under Prometheus. It wasn't that good for Prometheus because I felt like my my personal interest was more doing work in international contexts. But the organizational focus really needed to be in the United States situation. So that was one of my reasons for leaving was so that I could, in good conscience, take off conscience, take off for three weeks to like go to the Middle East or Latin America to work on radio stations there um, without having the organization like faltering because I was, you know, off enjoying myself and. In the time that you were working for Prometheus, were you paid by Prometheus? Yeah, yeah. Prometheus became my job in about 2001 or so. So when we launched the organization, we certainly didn't have any money for any of it, and it all just sort of happened out of my house and the other people that were key to it. Um, eventually, like when people started to see our track record, I mean... You know, there's not a lot of organizations that have managed to change federal regulations. Um, right. um, and so we started receiving some grants um, in about, two, well, we got a, a little bit of money in 99, um, which we almost, we gave almost all that to engineers or whatever for, for stuff. Um, but um, starting in 2001, late 2000, we had enough for a little bit of a staff. And so, yeah, that was my job. And by the time I left, Prometheus had maybe seven full-time employees and like four or five part-timers and five or six interns. So it was kind of a, it was a 
nightmare to fundraise for. <laughs> um, <laughs> but are, are they in effect, uh, you know, a strong organization now? You know, yeah, they're doing for, great. Right. They're doing great, and um, I'm really, I'm really happy with them. And I, you know, I went and visited today. You know, and I check in with them on on key things. I just. Um, I didn't. I just didn't want the responsibility anymore. But I really like the work that they do. And right, so you have an amicable relationship with yeah, them. Um, yeah. What is your source of income now that you've extricated yourself from the the group? Uh, now I mostly build radio stations for a living, um, and um, you know sometimes I'll do it for free if it's like a revolutionary group or something really interesting, um, and. You know, then some of them I'll do, um, you know, as a hired contractor, just like any other engineer. I'm cheaper than most engineers. Um, and I'll tend to work for farm workers organizations or civil rights groups or um, environmental groups that, that are starting radio stations as part of what they're doing. Um, well, in terms of leaving the country and, and doing things in other countries, I mean, it's, you know, fairly expensive endeavor to, to you know, fly to these places are they it is and it isn't like you know in some ways like whenever i have like a couple hundred extra dollars like i'll i'll, I'll just try to go to latin america because it's so much cheaper to live there yeah i and guess these so, are the advantages of living in philadelphia is that you could actually you know live on much less money than in other places and have you know the freedom to go about and do do certain things oh totally yeah that's that's a big plus for me you know i probably only spend about six months in philadelphia anymore out of the year but having a home to come back to and a place to pile all my radio junk, you know, and then to be able to go off, I couldn't do that if I lived in New York or someplace where space is so much more expensive and all that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I think um, I don't really approach doing radio projects in other countries. I, I approach it very similar to the way that we approached Radio Mutiny. Um, like I, I don't really know these giant aid organizations or big grants or anything like that. I mostly will just like, I'll take my tools in my bag, I'll take some parts, we'll sit together, we'll build antennas out of things you get at the hardware store. And, um, you know, I'm like, and I, I mean, there are a lot of things I'm missing. Like, you know, I don't have like checklists and, you know, and, um, evaluations and whatever so some of the projects just fall apart at some point and some of them do great um and just uh i mean everything that a development professional would do to like allocate those scarce resources and whatever i, I take more of an approach like it's either going to work because these people are really into it or it, it'll just it'll fizzle you know but all that went into it is like a week of me like having a good time hanging out meeting different people and like a couple hundred dollars worth of parts. And so yeah, right. not worth evaluating whether it works or not. It's just, you know, see, see where it sticks. Very good. I guess we'll, we'll sum it up and I'll ask the, the same question to, to the two of you going into 2014, um, with the, the vast predominance of the internet. Um, how do you f feel about the future of radio in, in a world that seems to focus very much on the internet. And I guess we'll start with you, Kate, and then finish up with Pete Treedish. Um, I haven't given any thought to that whatsoever. Um, 
In fact, I hardly even listen to the radio anymore. Um, I mostly listen to mixtapes that people give me things. Um, I think the internet, like everything, is, is both a blessing and a curse. Um, that it does provide a way for um, people to get their voices out and be heard and tell their stories. Um, in a way that they're not having to rely on other people or giant corporations to do so. But it also, I mean, there's just so much information that it, you, you can't figure out like what, where to get any information. It's, it's as much, you know, it's like standing in the toothpaste aisle at a grocery store where there's like 500 million kinds of toothpaste and you're, wishing you could shop at a company store where there's like one thing and you could just buy that and not stand for half an hour trying to figure out what's better this one for you know and it can be absolutely um paralyzing how much information there is um so i'm i'm really interested to see in and everything you know everything changes so fast also i'm really interested to see uh, the evolution of that. I think one thing that um, I one thing that I love about the internet is that it makes it easier for people to organize to be in the same room together, face to face, and talking. Like I, it's much more. This human interaction is much more important than um, and and like touch actual touching things and looking people in the eye is uh, a much better way to tell stories and, and to communicate than um, some pixels on the internet that just get totally lost. Um, and I'm, I'm interested in the part of the internet that can further that and further real actual connection. And surely that facilitated the process of getting all of the nurses together, you know, something that, that means of communicating to all those people brought them into a physical mm -hmm. place mm -hmm. together. Yeah, and it was it was actually pretty amazing organizing that conference because most of the people who were organizing it together never met in person until the day of the conference. We did it all on, um, like, on video chat and you know, got to see into everybody's kitchens and living rooms mm -hmm. and stuff, but we had never... Um, we'd never hugged or anything, shook, shaking each other's hands, and so that was a pretty, that was a pretty good first meeting when we were all um, sitting on the back porch of my old apartment and actually talking to each other instead of talking to our computers. Um, so yeah, that's a really great example of um, one of the things the internet's good for. In terms of radio, I don't really know. Pete, where go radio? Well, you know, I just wrote an article about this. That I'm about to release. It's called The Radio, The Internet, The Jetsons. Um, and, you know, we, we called it that because, you know, you think back to that show, The Jetsons, where, like, you know, you know, they've got the space flying car that you push a button in and it folds up into a suitcase. And there's the woman in the house who, like, you know, pushes this button and then, like, all the dishes wash themselves and all the beds make themselves. And she's like, oh, my God, so much housework. And... You know, so there's like, there's these ideas about technology that we walk around with because we've seen in our American experience, 
that technology has changed much more over the past 50 years than our political system has. Like our political system just keeps on, keeps on going around and around in a weird, very narrow stalemate of a very, very centrist position. I, I would call it a pretty far right um, market centric approach, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I think that um, people have been saying that radio is about to die ever since TV started in the 50s. Um, and, you know, they thought that radio would get destroyed by the Walkman. They thought radio would be destroyed by TV. And they thought it would get destroyed by the video cassette recorder. There were articles saying. But strangely enough, I mean, if you look at today's numbers, 92.4% of Americans listen to the FM radio every week. Um, mostly driving their cars um, uh, because because it's just too damn dangerous to do anything else in your car. Um, uh, to like manipulate a screen or, mm -hmm. you know, deal with your phone or whatever. So, I mean, if you're someone that like is reading Wired magazine, you could like easily live in that world where, you know, everything is your like eye gadget or whatever. But the actual numbers are 92% of Americans are still listening to the radio every week. Um, and part of it is just the enormous installed receiver base. The average American household has five radios in it. Um, a radio that you bought in 1972 actually still works today, as opposed to your iPhone, you know, from like two years ago. Yeah. And, um, and your radio never crashes, it never gets viruses, it never gets... You know, you know, so there's this whole... It's a very reliable friend. It's yeah. incredibly reliable and robust. And so there are a number of things that are so much better about the Internet. I mean, there's there'll never be more than about 40 FM radio stations in any given city. And in a big city, that is not enough for the diversity of that city. And um, I think that the killer thing to radio is eventually going to be podcasting because, I mean... You know, with the radio the way it is now, you just all have to sit, listen to the same show at the same time. And you have to structure your week around trying to, like, make that commitment of listening to the condom lady or the blanket man on Incarceration Nation, which people aren't doing as much. You know, they want to hear that special program, but they want to hear it at the time that they have time for it. So I, you know, uh, FM radio is not going to be with us forever, but I think it's going to have... A, a really long tail of considerable listenership because of the enormous technical challenges involved in like making the internet as reliable as it needs to be um, and as user-friendly as it would need to be to like be as good at radio as just doing what it does which is like getting audio from a speaker to a listener um, there was a, a public radio executive was talking at some conference I was listening to. And he said, you know, we have a 250 watt transmitter. It costs us, you know, I don't know, 50, $60 for the electricity and a couple hundred dollars for the tower lease. It's up on Mount, Mount Wilson in Los Angeles. It reaches 15 million people. There are 300,000 listeners that listen to that signal. If we had to send out 300,000 web streams to all those people, it would cost like four times our annual budget 
our entire annual operating budget mm -hmm. to have the rooms full of servers, the giant internet pipes to send every single listener on a cell phone or on a computer their own stream. He's like, it's kind of like making, uh, when you tune into our web stream, it's like you're making a collect call to the station and mm -hmm. we're, we're paying for it, mm -hmm. you know? So there are some just basic technical realities that mean that like, unlike some other technological transitions that we've seen, like the video store getting put out of business by, you know, streaming video by Netflix or whatever, radio, and this, is, this has nothing to do with my smarts, this has to do with my dumb luck, is I happen to pick a technology to like get kind of all involved in that's going to have a, just a very long, slow decline. I mean, radio is never going to be what it was in the 1940s when everyone was like jumping out the windows because they heard Orson Welles saying that the Martians were coming. Yeah, but you'll be dead before it is dead. Probably, yeah, yeah, I'll be... I'm not wishing that on you, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah, I mean, before it's totally dead, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's it's got another good 10, 15, 20 years of significant usefulness um, and significant audience share. Um, and, uh, and even more so in developing nations that always end up getting everything last. So right, right. the same thing goes for it now that went for it at Radio Mutiny. It's cheap and it's easy. Yeah. Um, well, and the other thing is, I mean, like over time, you know, I mean, I certainly like the technology. It's what I know how to do. Um, on the other hand, I, every station I work with, I tell them you can't just be a radio station anymore. You have to like pick your best program, start podcasting them, definitely get a stream, you know, because even if you've only got 10 listeners on it now, you know, someday you're going to have more listeners on it. So I don't see them as in conflict. I see them as complementary to each other. Mm -hmm. I think it is easy to like get in that Jetson's mindset where you're always thinking about the future and then you trip over like the, the actual now reality. Um, I mean, you don't see a lot of corporations shutting down their radio stations because no one's listening to them. That's not what's happening now. You know, it's, you know, if you're starting something new, you might, you want to think about the internet as part of your strategy, but it's just not, um, not dead yet by a long shot. Excellent. Uh, Pete, Kate, thank you very much for uh, talking to me and good night. Mm -hmm.